Good morning, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media soundbites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today's show, which was pre-recorded on September 11, 2020, is in honor of Maine's bicentennial. It's been 200 years since Maine officially split from Massachusetts and became our own state. An important anniversary like this one provides a great reason to look back at various aspects of our history. And so today's Coastal Conversations is specifically focused on the history of commercial fishing in Maine. If you're a regular listener, you know we cover fishing a lot on this show, with guests who work on fishing boats, scientists who study fisheries, and state official whose job it is to manage the harvest. Lately, we've unearthed some great oral history interviews from the last several decades and have started to bring more archived voices to the program, too. But today, with the help of our guests, we're headed back to the 1800s. Karen Alexander and Bill Leavenworth are maritime environmental historians. You can also call them historical marine ecologists, who've spent a lot of their careers piecing together the history of fishing in the Gulf of Maine. Between the birth of our great nation, through the birth of our great state, up through the Civil War, and into the modern era, Karen and Bill will help us understand how the people of Maine fished and lived through these historical moments and what conditions existed environmentally in the Gulf of Maine to sustain the unbelievable catches of species other than lobster that are part of Maine's fishing legacy. Working for years with the Gulf of Maine Cod Project at University of New Hampshire, Karen, Bill, and their colleagues analyzed thousands of fishing vessel logs. These vessel logs, or daily ship diaries, include everything that happened aboard each day, including what species of fish were caught, in what quantity, where, and by whom. As it turns out, the collection of cod fishing logs from the Civil War era in Maine that Karen and Bill unearthed is one of the most plentiful collections of fishing logs anywhere. Bill and Karen also compared the logbook data with other data sources from that time, such as census records and government reports. Their complex analysis tells us so much about the history of the Gulf of Maine from an ecological perspective, which helps marine ecologists and fisheries regulators today understand the ecological conditions needed to sustain fisheries in the past. What's interesting is that their analysis, especially of the Frenchman Bay region, also reveals a lot about people's everyday lives, jobs, families, and relationships on the coast of Maine in the 1800s. Now, let's get started with Karen and then Bill giving us an overview of the field of historical marine ecology, and then we'll jump into the fisheries history itself that Karen, Bill, and their colleagues have been able to piece together in large part through these cod fishing logs from the Gulf of Maine.
Just a reminder that this show was pre-recorded and we won't be taking any calls today. Here's Karen. Well, historical ecology, historical marine ecology is by nature interdisciplinary because um, you're, you're looking at the ecology of the marine systems, um, but you're going, you're going very far back and you're really looking at the interaction over a long period of time of human communities with the marine ecosystem and how they influenced each other going back and forth. And so you need to have mathematical skills, you need to have statistical skills, you need to have a lot of information about ecology and about fish populations. And you also need to have the historical information and, um, and climate information, um, geological information, um, hydrographic information, all of these things come together to tell a really complex story of change over time. Whatever you're interested in, there's some way you can associate it with maritime environmental history. Um, if, you, if you like to fish, if you like to sail, if you like to walk on the beach, uh, or if you like to walk, if you like to explore inland streams, or if you like to canoe down um, the Penobscot River, it's all related. You can, you can tie everything to um, marine ecology. And so it's inherently synthetic. I mean, we're not taking um, a whole lot of evidence and trying to break it part, apart and, and, and decide on one particular influence or one particular driver. We're taking all of these drivers and trying to discover trends that come from the interaction of them. So, as you said, very interdisciplinary and very complex because you're yeah. looking at the historical framework, the sort of historical trends that happening that were happening at different times and trying to layer onto that what might have been the ecological framework that's happening at the time. And you have zeroed in on Gulf of Maine fisheries with this work. When we started doing our research on the, on the cod, we didn't know that there were all these cod logs. And then we started tracking them down and there are hundreds of them from the, from the um, Smithsonian in, in uh, DC up to a few up, up in Orono. And, and uh, uh, they're concentrated, there are concentrations of them in various places. But they tell you an enormous amount about the inshore fisheries. Um, one of the things that's really good about the Gulf of Maine too <clears throat> is the fact that there's, um, there's more concentrated, better quality information and actual data sets, numerical data sets about Gulf of Maine fisheries than practically any place else. And they go all the way back to 1804. And so this makes something like historical marine ecology really important because you're not just looking at narrative information and pictorial information. Um, you're also looking at actual data that can be, can be analyzed. Um, marine history is wonderful. And we've worked with some of the best marine historians that there are. And Bill, is, Bill I guess, thinks of himself as a, a maritime historian. Um, for the most part, too. But if you're going to do historical ecology, you have to have that quantitative element. And in the Gulf of Maine, um, the, the cod logs are practically unique in the world in terms of the amount of information, <coughs> the amount of detail that, that they record about a particular place in time. And um, let's talk about the cod logs. What are they? Originally, um, they had to be turned in to demonstrate that 
the vessel had been engaged in the cod fishery for the bounty. I'm going to backtrack a little bit here and say for the people who don't know what a log is, <clears throat> that a log is, is a record. It's a daily diary and a record of what happens on the ship um, during, during the hours of the day. And um, they're kept on all vessels, they're kept on naval vessels, they're kept on, um, on cargo vessels and, and ocean liners, and they're kept on fishing vessels. And they have been, um, you know, for, for centuries and centuries. This is a very old tradition in, 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 in the maritime culture. And, um, and these have been really important for lots of, lots of kinds of studies. They've used uh, whaling logs, logs of whaling vessels, um, to find out the location of whale populations and, um, and to actually track currents during the 1800s. Some of the very earliest global currents were identified using information from these whaling logs. Well, um, well we used fishing logs that were the logs of fishing vessels that kept track of everything that happened during every single day that they were at sea. And for the most part, nothing happened and the logs are very boring. They'll say things like, um, Sunny caught some fish, so ends this day. <laughs> but sometimes they get really, really exciting. And even the boring information, if you have enough of it, can build a pattern that can be really important. And um, one of the first things that our, our group, the Gulf of Maine Cod Project did that was significant is, um, is we found thousands of fishing logs that nobody had known existed. And this was basically the meat of our work for the next 10 years, was going through some of these logs. We certainly didn't go through all of them. Um, but, um, but the ones that we studied the most were the ones for the Frenchman's Bay region in Maine. And how did you come upon these logs? If, if no one knew that they existed, how did they come into your, into your hands? One of our grad students stumbled on some in the um, Essex Institute. Yes. And those were the Beverly Logs. And then we started looking around and found that the Waltham Archives, the National Archives in Waltham, had the Frenchman's Bay Logs. And then little historical societies had three or four logs here and there. And if you got into them, the logs tell you not only the name of everyone who was fishing, but uh, they give you an indication of the the educational level of the skipper. I mean, we found Frenchman's Bay logs in which the skipper was paraphrasing Latin poets. Wow. This is not common. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't every log, no. <laughs> mm -hmm. but, but, you know, um, it's amazing to, to be reading a log that just says so-and-so, lists the, the members of the crew and then under, and then under the, each name by day how many fish they caught. And so, and then that makes comments on the weather and, and who they saw and that sort of thing. And then you have this one that pops up that's, that's quoting a Latin poet and another one who's, who's uh, paraphrasing a Latin poet. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then sometimes they, there would be pictures drawn in the logs. And they, yeah, they would yeah. illustrate uh -huh. their logs. Yeah. So to, to give you a flavor of the variety at sea, um, these logs contain the names of everybody aboard the vessel. They contain how many fish each person caught per day. Um, they contain um, sometimes the location, sometimes there's, um, there's lat long location. For the Frenchman's Bay logs, mostly um, uh, 
not as much information was needed because it was mostly a coastal fishery and they either did um, did dead reckoning or, or they just knew where they were and they didn't they didn't actually tell you exactly where they were or how they got there and then sometimes you would have um, have little notes about things that happened during the day um, sometimes the Frenchman's Bay vessels would say um, going in for church and they would they would go home and they would go to church and they'd go out the next day on Monday. And sometimes they would say going in to get out the hay. And other times they would say going in to vote, because these logs took place during the Civil War and voting was a, considered to be a very big civic duty. At least one of the logs tells that they they put up an effigy of Jefferson Davis and shot it. That's right. Who was Jefferson Davis? The president of the Confederacy. But also by, by going into the census nearest that year, you, you, can, you can find out what these guys were doing when they weren't on the boat. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the a plurality of those crews of, of the Frenchman's Bay fisheries were schoolboys. When they came yeah. off the boat in the fall, they went back to school. Mm what's the um what's the time frame that we're talking about you said some of the logs that you were that you've really studied related to frenchman bay which is the bay just east of bar harbor okay not exactly not exactly they are the frenchman's bay customs district and the okay. customs district um collected the logs in 1852 congress passed a law because they figured that a lot of people were um were, were not quite truthful about how many fish they caught or what kinds of fish they caught, and they were not quite truthful about obeying the law. And so they required the customs officer to collect all of the logs before he paid the bounty duty to the fishermen. And, um, and the logs stayed in the customs house. And sometimes they stayed there for years and years and years. And when the National Archives started, um, the logs were collected that remained and taken to the National Archives. Okay. And why was there a bounty? Well, the argument was that it trained, it trained sailors for the Navy. But I think a subtext was that it encouraged people to, to fish and to fish harder because it, even if the market did not pay them the, if, it, if they had to be fishing from a vessel, not a boat, it had to be over five tons. Can you describe the difference between a vessel and a boat? Tonnage. You know, a, a vessel and a boat could be virtually identical, except the vessel was a little bigger. Okay. And, and I think the boat was under five, ton, five tons or less. Um, but the, the idea was that it, it would pay people to continue fishing even if they couldn't make good wages on the fish in a given year, they could, make, they could make something up on the side in the bounty. And because the bounty was paid by tonnage, not by fish. And the log demonstrated that they had been fishing and they had to have been fishing a certain number of days. Now, now the cod fishery was really important too. We have, a, we have a hard time imagining how important the cod fishery was in the early days of, of the, the country. Um, cod, right before the revolution, salt cod was the fourth leading export of all of the 13 American colonies. 
and after the revolution, um, the only way the federal government could get any money, it didn't have income taxes, the only way they could get money was pretty much from customs duties and the sale of, of government land. So they wanted to make sure they had as many, as, 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 as much coming in from customs duties as possible. And this is where the customs houses get involved here. So the cod bounty actually is a subsidy to the cod fishery. It was started in 1792. And as Bill said, it encouraged people to fish um, despite the profitability. And it also encouraged them to run the biggest boat they could. And that was sort of a side subsidy to the, to the shipbuilding industry. But you could only fish for cod and you could only fish for cod that was salted. So if you fish for, if you caught a little mackerel or if you caught maybe some hake or halibut, that would negate the bounty and you couldn't get any money. So if, if you caught a nice halibut, you quickly put it ashore as you came back home in, into the harbor before you started unloading your cod. Um, but the, the idea was partly that, that nearly all the salt used in, in preservation of meats was imported. And so when they, when they bought their salt to salt down their, their fish, they had to pay a duty, an import duty on the salt. So this was partly to reimburse boats or, or vessels for the money they had paid for the salt that they used to preserve their fish. Okay. And so, so, so back to the Frenchman Bay Custom District, um, what was the geographic scope of the fishermen who were in the Frenchman Bay Custom District? It was beyond Frenchman Bay itself. Is that right? Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. Mostly it contained um, the, the Blue Hill Peninsula, Blue Hill Bay, Mount Desert Island, Frenchman's Bay, and the Scudic Peninsula. However, the, while the majority of fishermen came from this area, um, the, the census records show that fishermen came from all over the place. There was a fisherman from Brazil, there were fishermen from Europe, um, there were a few African-American fishermen, there were fishermen from, Me from Mexico, um, and it showed that this was, uh, there was a whole lot more of an international cosmopolitan access going on here than one might not expect for the mid-19th century. Um, and was, then there were also, you know, people from other states. It was, a, it was a way for a foreigner to, to seat himself into, into a community. I'm sure that the, the Mexican that showed up in the Frenchman's Bay crew was after the Mexican War. That's right. So, and then there was a Black American family over on Scudic Point who fished. So in terms of what you were saying, and for example, the, the Mexican person who turned up in the logs. Um, so help ground what was going on in the Frenchman Bay Custom District for us in terms of sort of the larger framework of fisheries in at that time. So we're, I think we're talking about second half of the 1800s. This is, um, this is Mid-1800s. Yeah, mid-1800s, actually. This is from about 1830 to the Civil War. Okay. Um, and and, and this, this was really the heyday. And if you look at Wayne O'Leary's main sea fisheries, I mean, this is a, the, the time period that, that he also recognizes as the heyday of, of Maine fisheries. And, um, and Maine, had, Maine had just become a state. It was really 
gathering together to, to start exploiting its natural resources. And of course that included timber and fish. And, um, and you saw um, a lot of activity to, um, of, of not only investment, but sweat equity, people getting together to build boats, to go out and, and um, take advantage of all of this new infrastructure that was being put in place to connect Maine to the rest of the world. And, um, and at the same time um, that, that this was going on, um, you, you have things like the, the Mexican-American War and people, people who, who, um, who might from the vicissitudes of fate get on a vessel and go someplace that they, they wouldn't under normal conditions go. There was an awful lot of coasting between Maine and South America. This was the beginning of that too. And not only did they go into the Caribbean and those places, but, but they went down to Brazil. The Brazil trade really began to build up. And some of these fishing vessels during the wintertime um, didn't have anything to do, so they became coasters. And they would go down, kind of bumping down the coast, and then sometimes even as far as South America. So you saw all of these different things starting to come because this was a new area. It was still, still had the feel of a frontier. It was still largely a barter economy because there wasn't a lot of cash here, but there was an awful lot, there was a lot of opportunity to make money and to, to make cash and to build something for yourself. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at weru.org with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. We're talking today with Karen Alexander and Bill Leavenworth, who are both maritime environmental historians whose work focuses on Gulf of Maine fisheries in the 1800s. Our show today, in honor of the Maine Bicentennial, is all about Maine's historical cod fishery. Our guests have been piecing together that history using vessel logbooks collected during the Civil War era. We've been learning how, after the American Revolution, salted codfish was the fourth leading export, which meant it was a critical component of the young nation's economy, and the new federal government wanted to make sure the industry thrived. In 1792, the government started the codfishing bounty, which was paid by the local customs agent to a vessel owner when they handed in their fishing logs. The bounty was calculated based on the size of the vessel. It essentially served as a subsidy to the fishing industry and, by extension, the boat-building industries that supplied the vessels and the salt industry that imported the salt needed to preserve the fish. Maine had several customs districts, including the Frenchman Bay District, which we are mostly focusing on today. In this next segment, we talk more with Karen and Bill not only about the cod fishery in the 1800s, but also about some of the important commercial fish species back then, such as menhaden or pogies, as they're called locally, and mackerel. And we'll also explore how larger historical trends, such as the rise of the railroad, impacted local fisheries. A quick reminder to our listeners that this show was recorded on September 11th, 2020, so we won't be taking any calls today. Here's Karen Alexander talking about the mackerel fishery the mackerel fishery. I mean, we don't talk about the cod fishery because we have these logs, but the only reason we have logs is because of the bounty. And in fact, during this period of time, the mackerel fishery was really getting going and was overtaking the cod fishery in terms of its importance in, um, in America. And there were, there were 
larger vessels, you know, from, from right from Castine and other parts of down East Maine that were going up and catching mackerel in, in the Bay of St. Lawrence and then going down along the coast of um, the American South and catching mackerel and just following these big schools of fish. So all of this was going on at the same time and you had people coming in on boats and getting off and then deciding they wanted to stay. There are a lot of Canadians who came down during this time because they thought that there was more opportunity down here in the States. And they came down on a fishing vessel and got off and stayed here. So all of this is reflected in the, the customs in the, the census records that tell us about the fishermen in these logs. And why was the, um, why was the bounty collected specifically on cod and not halibut or hake or mackerel even? Well, cod, were, cod was the the market for cod was for salt cod, so the bounty was to reimburse them for the bounty for the duties they paid on the imported salt to preserve their catch. And the other fish were were um, sold semi fresh. I mean, as fresh as as a halibut could be if you caught it in Bar Harbor and and sailed it down to Boston. But um, there was. What we consider the big money fish today, swordfish and, and uh, tuna, for instance, were trash fish. They, were in, they would get into a wear if they followed some herring into a wear, they got caught in the wear and they would tear the wear to pieces trying to get out. And there wasn't much of a market for them except for cat food. So, so you see the swordfish market and the tuna market was just beginning to get a hold in among human consumers. Mm -hmm. Around this time. But the reason, the reason the cod bounty was the cod bounty and not the mackerel bounty was because of the historic importance of salt cod globally. And because of the historic importance of salt cod to, um, to US custom revenues. And, um, and by this time, by the time that the logs began to be collected in 1852, um, a lot of that had gone by the wayside, but many things that we deal with today are remnants of a historical situation that happened in the past mm -hmm. and this has just hung on. This is a kind of path dependence that history, history sets us on. You know, there are things that we do now that um, like, um, you know, like, like, like men opening doors for women. I mean, there's no reason to do that at all, but men still do it because she it was- me out. Uh, Yeah, I yell at him for that. But men still do it because, because it was considered to be polite, you know, in the Victorian era. And, um, yeah. and it's, it's still a, like standing up for how, the hallelujah chorus. People do that because George III did it in the 1700s. And, and I think one of the reasons the cod bounty lasted for so long um, was, was that it had this historical significance. And then um, in, in, in terms of its, its benefit for Maine, we actually think it was quite a benefit to, the, to down East Maine because these communities were so small and they were so unconnected to, the, you know, to, to, to banks and finance that this was one of the few infusions of actual cash money that they, they could rely on. And not only the fishermen, but because the fishermen were, collect, were connected throughout the community. Um, by by neighbor by by as neighbors and friends and family, um, this this money trickled down to the entire community. Mm. It really gave it a boost, and so this was this was really important. Um, O'Leary O'Leary says that that there wasn't a whole lot of 
of um, negative reaction once the bounty was was um, allowed to be suspended in, in, in 1866. But we kind of disagree with that for a little bit because if you look at, at the at the main sea fisheries or fisheries in general from down east, you see that a lot of the the, the movement to go offshore and and um, and invest in in the deeper sea fisheries and the larger fisheries that kind of dried up. Yeah, and, and sort of pulls the, the larger vessels away from the Down East region, right? Yeah, exactly. And the Down East region, um, which had always focused on the shore fishery anyway, now entirely focused on the shore fishery. Because it was small, the, what was left was smaller vessels that could sort of stay low? No. no. About that time, the first icing came in. It, the first ice 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 plants plants and 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 cutting mm -hmm. ice for ice houses yeah which would preserve the fish without salt um that was that was hitting the the salt customs mm -hmm. and There's suddenly a, there was more of a market for fresh fish than there was for salt fish and yeah particularly yeah. when they with the advent of fast steamers when they could get fresh that's where when they began to sell swordfish and and halibut in in Boston and New York, because they could, those people would pay for for luxury fish, and and they didn't want to be seen eating cod like their poor working neighbors. I had a, a neat conversation with um, someone who whose family was connected to one of the processing plants in Southwest Harbor, and he had this great memory of of ice coming out of a pond that was up behind Southwest Harbor and a sluiceway being built to send the ice down to the waterfront so that they could load the holds and, and ship the fish off to, to various yeah. markets. And that transformed these fisheries and, and, and it transformed them because, because suddenly there was a market for all of these different fish that you didn't have to preserve with either brine or salt. Mm -hmm. and, and, you could, and they tasted really good fresh. And so you could you could diversify your fishery. That's when that's when the the coastal fishery began to diversify and catch different kinds of fish when the fish came to them through migration. Mm -hmm. and, when are we talking about? Oh, we're talking we're talking after the Civil War. Okay. Yeah. Uh huh. And then and and not only were the um, the, the fast steamships really important with this, but the railroad. Well, the railroad came into the the western side of Penobscot Bay. And as soon as you saw that, you began to see the, 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 the fishing entrepots build up along, along the West and then take those fish directly by rail to Boston and New York. So the importance of coastal trade that we were talking about a minute ago sort of started going down. Uh, it never went down completely, but, but certainly for these, these, um, these luxury fish that Bill's um, talking about, it went down a great deal. The, the market for fresh fish in urban centers where there was a lot more cash flow was, was uh, grew exponentially. And so the demand grew. And then it began to include lobsters and, and uh, oysters and things like that, you know, shellfish. Yeah, so, so, so much being dependent in fisheries on how can you get the product to market before it spoils. Exactly. Yeah. And you saw these these you know these kind of um, um, fancy fish markets develop that really hadn't existed before, like the smelt mm. market. 
developed and um, and that's because people in Boston and New York decided they wanted to eat smelt and so um, so you had the the, um, the recreational smelters and also professional smelters who would catch them in the wintertime and then ship them in, in the cold down to these places. But the, just the, the speed, the having the ice and the speed of the railroad and, and, and steam transportation uh, transformed the possibilities of the fishery in Down East Maine. And it made it a whole lot easier for people to stay close to home and rotate their target species and be able to make a living in conjunction with farming or with a little bit of timbering or with the other things that you could do on land. Um, can you help us understand the, um, the scale of the fishery at that time um, in, in the Frenchman Bay region? What time? Well, in the... when, when you were uh, the time of the bounty. Okay, the cod logs. Yeah, um, and before. Yeah, and before. Well. Um, well, well, we we did a study, um, and this is um, this is the beauty of all of these quantitative data as well as qualitative data because we could we could actually go and back and forth and and um, and and really create an enormously complicated and 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 um, an interesting picture. And uh, and one of the things that we did was we found that um, that we could estimate um, pretty accurately because we had all these catch records and because, um, because the fishermen were paid by the number of fish they caught and because the fish were sold by the weight, we had a number of fish and the weight of the fish so we could give you the, the weight per fish. Mm -hmm. um, we calculated that, um, that in 1861, there were about 12,000 metric tons of cod caught just in this Frenchman's Bay area where, where they fished. And that was from the eastern end of Penobscot Bay up to Grand Manan, mostly along the coast. 12,000 metric tons of cod were caught in this little area. And the last time 12,000 metric tons of cod were caught in the Gulf of Maine was in 1992, which was right before the crash. Right before the cod crash. I looked that up. <laughs> um, we have never even come close to that since then. Wow. I will say one thing though, um, in, on behalf of, of our Frenchman's Bay logs, that um, we, we looked at a lot of logs from the, the, the deep water fishery. The Beverly logs were mostly the deep water fishery, about 80% of them. And, and define deep water fishery? Um, the, the, the fishing grounds off, the Scotia, off Nova Scotia called the Scotian Shelf and out to the Grand Banks. And uh, this was an entirely different fishery from the Frenchman's Bay fishery. Um, most of these, most of these, these vessels um, were in dangerous places. There were bad storms. There was conflict among the crew. Um, you know, sometimes there would be mutinies. Sometimes somebody would get sick and die. Sometimes, some, sometimes somebody would have alcohol poisoning. I mean, there were storms that came up that, that wrecked vessels. It was, you know, it was, you never knew what you were gonna get. Um, the, old, the worst thing we ever read in, what, in, in the 524 Frenchman's Bay logs that we looked at during the Civil War was one time when one teenager could not get over seasickness and had to be taken back home and put on shore. And the captain wrote in his log, I don't think his future is in the fishery. <laughs> and that's it. That's the worst thing. 
So this was a this was a a, a safe fishery. This was um, inshore. But inshore. Yeah, and which was the Frenchman's Bay fishery. It was mostly 90% of it was inshore. This was safe. It was family oriented. It was um, these people were thoughtful. They understood the, the, the relationship between the forage fish and the codfish and, um, and they wanted to protect their sustainable fishery. They wanted to protect their way of life because this was the foundation of their way of life. And this was not just the Frenchman's Bay fishing fishery. This was, this was all along the main coast. This was the main coastal fishery. It was mm -hmm. a, these small locally built boats, um, often, often crewed by relatives or next door neighbors or across the street neighbors of the people who built them. Uh, and they could make pretty good money. Um, there, was, there was an interview with somebody in, uh, that was published in the uh, Industrial Journal in, in Bangor, an interview with a guy who was uh, fishing, who owned a farm down near Freeport. And somebody asked him how he could um, pay somebody to farm his, to tend his crops while he was fishing. And he, he explained how much money he could make fishing in those days near shore. He could make enough money to buy a farm and pay somebody to farm it. Wow. Oh. Mm -hmm. While, while uh, other people, you know, were going west and, and settling farms out further west and so forth. But this was, this was a, a fishery that was close inshore. And it was done by people, by and large, who could not do celestial navigation. They, they had Marks books, families had Marks books. And the Marks books enabled the skipper to look over the compass and triangulate on fixed marks on shore to put himself over a, a known productive inshore bank. Mm -hmm. And years ago when I was up in, in Beals Island, uh, one of the Beals, one, uh, one of the descendants of tall Barney Beal was a fisherman showed me the family Marks books. You know, th those guys could make a living within sight of shore because they had to be within sight of shore to do the sightings on, to, to triangulate. And they, could, and they would go back to the same banks year after year after year. Mm -hmm. While the, the guys who went off to the Scotian Shelf or the, or the Grand Banks, they would sound until they got on the banks and then they would have to look for signs of fish, you know, schools of, uh, schools of fish would be covered by, by seabirds or whales, you know, and that's, that's where they, or they would have to sound for fish, you know, just drop a, a baited hook and, and then keep doing that repeatedly until they came up with a fish. So they'd know that they were on fish. Whereas these, the guys who fished inshore just triangulated. Hmm. And they went back to the same banks that their great-grandparents had fished. Now, here's another thing. When we did our Beverly study, which we did before the, the Frenchman's Bay study, um, we found that these Beverly vessels that were fishing on the, the Nova Scotia to fishing banks um, actually, actually contributed to the collapse of the, those banks in 1859 and 1860. Those banks collapsed. And, um, and Bankero, which was the best bank there, had not recovered in, by the 1880s. 
Wow. And so, um, so we look for the differences between these fisheries and the French Trans Bay fisheries. And we found that they had different economic motives. They used the same vessels, mm -hmm. the same gear, the same bait, but they had different economic motives. The Beverly vessels went out to fish as hard and as fast as possible and catch as much as they could and get home so they could make their money and get out again. The Frenchman's Bay vessels didn't do that because all these guys were neighbors and relatives. They had farms, they had other jobs, they had other things that they could do. And so they fished to make a certain amount of money and stopped. And they actually tried to fish to minimize the effort that it took to make the money from fishing. Hmm. And so for them, it was more important to have a long-term sustainable fishery that they could count on year after year than it was to go out and catch as much as they possibly could. You're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org with your host, me, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. We're talking today with Karen Alexander and Bill Leavenworth, both maritime environmental historians, helping us understand the roots of Maine's fishing industry back in the 1800s. Today's show is in honor of Maine's bicentennial. By taking a step back in time, we can see how modern day fisheries are based on foundations laid more than 150 years ago. Our guest, Karen Alexander, was just talking about the culture of sustainability among Maine's inshore fishermen during the Civil War, something that we see reflected in today's small-scale, owner-operated lobster fishery. In our next segment, we explore how Maine's fishermen paid close attention to what we'd call today the ecology of their target species, including the bait fish, such as alewives and herring, that they used to catch the cod. While we think of inshore fisheries decline or even collapse as a modern phenomenon, Karen and Bill's research into historical documents reveals how the decline of many species started long, long ago, and it was the fishermen and the people living close to the land who were the first to sound the alarm, even back then. A reminder to all of you that this show was pre-recorded on September 11th, 2020, so we won't be taking any calls today. Here's more from Karen talking now about bait fish and the sources of information historical marine ecologists use to create an understanding of the past. The other thing you see is that these guys, um, these guys knew they needed bait and they knew that, um, that the herring and the alewives and the menhaden were really important. And um, of course the menhaden fishery, we don't talk about that a whole lot in historical ecology, but the Menhaden fishery started in this area too. It started in Blue Hill Bay. And, um, and within 10 years of the, this first woman who boiled down the Menhaden and got the oil off of it and sold it in Boston, within 10 years they were building factories. And there are big vessels that were seining that were coming up in this area and catching Menhaden to, um, to reduce to oil. And um, the fishermen up here got really, really upset. And they petitioned the Maine State Legislature to stop these reduction vessels from coming through and tearing up the Menhaden schools because the Menhaden schools brought the cod inshore so that they could have their sustainable fisheries. And one of the guys who signed this petition in 1852 was a guy that fished on the Frenchman's Bay fleet. And, um, and we have his log from the 1860s. 
and his name was James Lindsay. And he is the father of Sylvester Lindsay, who was two years old in the 1860s. <laughs> so this is how after a while you start to put all these people together and you learn a lot about their lives just from, from their names on these little documents. So you're looking at logbooks, you're looking at census data from the day, you're mm -hmm. looking at petitions yes. and, and sort of cross-referencing and starting to zero in on here's this person who appears here and appears there and what story does that tell about the time? And that's, and that's, that's how, you know, how the, the, the scientific statistical data can tell you about what's being caught and what those relationships are. But this cross-referencing can tell you about the families and how these families and what the thought behind it was going on and how these families related and fit together. And these, these guys were ecologists without knowing yeah. that word. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They, they, you know, they voted that they finally, it was a Maine state legislator who finally, uh, down in Washington, D.C., who finally got a law passed forbidding out-of-state uh, saners steam-powered saners from saning Menhaden in our bays. Because at one time, there were, in 1879, there were 20, I think, Rhode Island steam saners saning just in Belfast Harbor and Bay and up the river. Yeah. And when they'd sucked everything out of Belfast Harbor and the, and the river, they went up the Penobscot as far as Winterport. And so they were just taking, they were taking, they were truncating the bottom of the of the trophic pyramid. And as everyone knows now, and as the local fishermen knew then, if you take out the bottom of the trophic pyramid, the top withers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they all came, and th th this was the Menhaden fishery. They came in 1879 and they sucked up all the Menhaden. These, these, um, these steam trawlers were among the biggest fishing vessels in the world at that time. And guess what happened to the Menhaden fishery in the Gulf of Maine? It collapsed. How about that? It collapsed and then the steam trawlers were reconfigured to hunt mackerel. Guess how long the mackerel lasted? 10 years. Huh. And the mackerel fishery collapsed. And there haven't been, um, there haven't been mackerel or Menhaden fisheries that size ever since. Mm, mm. Just an interesting side anecdote. This summer, right now in 2020, um, we're hearing from a lot of fishermen and a lot of recreational boaters who spend a lot of time on the water around Frenchman Bay that there's a lot of pogies or menhaden. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah we've heard that all I the way that. over. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In 1822, there was a man who was sailing from Boston to Casca Bay. And as he was sailing through the southern part of the Gulf of Maine, he went through a, and the whole vessel did, they went through a school of Menhaden that was two miles wide and 40 miles long. Wow, that's amazing. These are big Menhaden. These are the little tiny Menhaden that they have in the Gulf of Mexico. These were big, fat, adult Menhaden. Wow. Two miles wide, 40 miles long. It's, it's remarkable because I think most people today um, who sort of hear in the news about decline in fisheries sort of figure, you know, this is the modern era, maybe fisheries populations are collapsing, but what your work is really showing is that these kinds of collapses have been happening for 150, 200 years already. Yes. It's a, it's a domino effect, you know, uh, the, the more they 
every time they scoop up a school of forage fish, they are starving piscivorous fish and they're depriving them of the lipids they need to procreate. Mm -hmm. When I was, back in 1980, I worked on a herring singer out off of, of uh, New Hampshire. And I noticed that we were, we were taking lots of herring, but we were out in waters where we were competing with whales and a number of other saners. And we were catching these, these herring far, far enough from their spawning grounds so that they were dropping all of their Milton and Roe in the fish hold. And a few years ago at a, a New, New England Fisheries, Fisheries Management Council meeting, I talked to some of the fishermen who'd been on the other boats there. And they said, there is no longer a herring fishery there. They're all gone. And, yeah. and what I tell people is if you eat, eat something before it is reproduced, it probably won't reproduce. And if it does reproduce after you've eaten it, you'll probably wish you hadn't eaten it. Hmm. So it's got to be, um, and people have to learn not to, to truncate the, the, the trophic pyramid at the bottom because it, it destroys the top. Sort of taking a side jog to um, over the course of, you know, settlement in New England and Maine, we also built a bunch of dams. Yep. So help us connect the dots with what was happening with the fishery in the Gulf of Maine and what was happening with the prey base, the fish that travel up and down the estuaries and the rivers. Good problem. Um, mm -hmm. As early as the 1760s or 70s, uh, the, the people down on the uh, Presumpscot put in a request with, because it was then Massachusetts territory, put in a request with the, with the Boston, with the governor and council in Boston to force the dam owners on the Presumpscot to open their dams and build fishways so that they could keep the passage of the, the anadromous fish in season. And they said, even then, the fishermen who were fishing for cod close inshore noted that while, when they, the dams kept out the, the alewives, they were not catching cod. The cod came in looking for food. One of our colleagues, Carolyn Hall and, um, and, uh, and Adrian Jordan and um, some others um, did a study a few years ago and, um, and found out that, um, that over 90% of the, the spawning habitat in Maine had been blocked by, um, by quite early by, um, by the Civil War. And um, and there 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 are remnant populations, you know, hanging on in a lot of places. And in fact, if you look at Maine alewife catch, you'll see that um, that it it um, it went down pretty low, but then it kind of uh, maintained the same level for a long time, despite all of this damming that had taken place. It wasn't a very high level. Um, there is a there's a record from from the Charles River in the very early days um, when, when the Boston had just been settled. And, uh, and William Wood, who was one of the early settlers, said that, um, that they had taken 100,000 alewives and shad at, um, at the dam in the Charles River 
in one in two tides. So that was 24 hours. Wow. And that's a lot of alewives and shed. So you can imagine that most of these rivers probably were, were filled to that degree. Um, the million, between a million and two million fish that were caught in Maine um, after around 1900 um, was a pretty general catch for alewives on these rivers. And that lasted for a long time until um, till the 1960s. And in the 50s and 60s, you began to see um, you began to see offshore herring fleets come in, and the herring fleets would catch the the offshore alewives with the herring. And um, and at that point, you began to see the the, the catch of alewives tank again mm. until until we've reached this low level. Um, nobody thought. People often ask well, what good is historical ecology? Because we'll never get to those numbers again. You know, the things have changed too much. Conditions have changed and, and that's just in the past and we can never recreate the past. Well, no, you can't recreate the past, but you ought to learn from it and you ought to be inspired by it. When the Edwards Dam was taken out in 1999, nobody knew what was gonna happen. This was a grand experiment. And a lot of people thought it would be impossible for alewives to come back after, what, almost 200 years. And yet they did. And dam removal has been such an unexpected and amazing success, um, not only in Maine, but, but, but everywhere it's been tried, that, that this just shows you how resilient nature actually is. And now we're in the middle of an experiment to see what will happen to the marine ecosystem since these alewives are coming back and some of these other anadromous fish are coming back too. And it's so important that we actually begin to study this. Mm -hmm. And I think the Sentinel Survey and some of these other, other groups in Maine are, you know, are, are taking this quite seriously and beginning to do this kind of work. But, um, but just, as, just as, as, um, as, as things have gotten to be very, very, very damaged, uncertainty is our friend here too, because they might recover more than we think they can. And, um, and I think history tells us that we owe them that chance to try. So is there a, a hope that maybe with the dam removals and the, the uptick in alewife populations and other sea run fish populations that it might trigger a, a regrowth of the cod and the ground fish? Is that? Is that... Well, we're, right now we're sitting across the road and down a hill from Quantabaycook Pond at the head of the St. George River. Alewives are in Quantabaycook Pond now. The problem is when it's this dry, they can't get back out to sea. Mm -hmm. they, can't, they can't get back over the dam, because, not because the dam is there, but because there's no water going over it. And if I've watched them go down the, the St. George through a number of little dams, what was left after they pulled out the big ones. And as you know, they go back, they go downstream over a dam, they go down tail first. So they can always point into the current. And the big, in the 1800s, the late 1800s, the big push to get rid of the dams or build fish ladders came not just from the fishermen, but from the people who lived upstream because they counted on alewives for pickled fish and for fish to, to feed their, their livestock and for fish to fertilize their gardens. 
And for that reason, the, um, the fish commissioner, the main fish commissioner in the 1860s or 70s, in the late 1800s anyway, last third of them, um, they made a law that people had to have a fish ladder over a dam. And you know the duck trap stream in Lincolnville? There were, I think, seven fish ladders just, just on the duck trap. And I don't think there's one there now. So once, once it was possible to get good protein at the store and keep it in your refrigerator, the people who lived upstream lost interest in maintaining their annual supply of alewives. And now the, the interest has regenerated because people want to see more fish inshore. There um, a lot of these questions are um, are debatable, and there is no consensus consensus on um, on what restoring um, alewife populations. And we're not just talking about alewives now; we're talking about herring populations because the herring population is close to crashing, and um, and the herring amendment eight that was passed a couple of years ago by the New England Fisheries Management Council is um, is designed to restore coastal spawning herring populations, which is would be just fantastic. Um, we don't know if that's going to bring back the ground fish. Um, there are some lobstermen who don't want the ground fish to come back. So there, I mean, there are lots of different aspects of this question and it's very controversial. Um, I think that we may not know if the ground fish will come back or, um, or will help the puffins or the whales or all of these other creatures that eat forage fish. But, um, but we know it won't hurt them to try to restore these populations. And it has a chance of helping them, whereas if we don't restore the populations, there is no chance to help them. So I think we might as well err on the side of hope rather than err on the side of skepticism. And that seems like a great place to wrap up our historical journey through Maine's 19th century fisheries. Our show today was in honor of Maine's bicentennial, and I'm incredibly grateful to our guests, Bill Leavenworth and Karen Alexander, both maritime environmental historians who have poured much of their careers and passions into understanding the legacy of fishing throughout the Gulf of Maine. Karen and Bill have shown us what the historical record can teach about the lives of our predecessors here in Maine's coastal communities, as well as the environmental conditions in place 150 years ago that supported so many people making their living off the land and the sea. Thanks so much, Karen and Bill. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. And we also encourage you to listen to our sister program, Talk of the Towns, with host Ron Beard from 4 to 5 on the second Wednesday of each month. The Coastal Conversations theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good weekend.